Good morning. Shall we pray and get started? Um, adapting from Psalm 119. Lord, let your steadfast love come to us, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then we shall have an answer for those who taunt us, and they will see that we trust in your word. Take not the word of truth utterly out of our mouths, for our hope is in your, your rules, the way that you have, have ordered the creation, the way that you bring both law and gospel to us. We will keep your law, your teachings, continually, forever and ever, and we shall walk in a wide place, a blessed place, for we sought your precepts. We will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for we find delight in your commandments, which we love. We will lift up our hands toward your commandments, these revelations of your truth and of your goodness and mercy, which we love, and we will meditate on your statutes. Amen. That actually fits really nicely with our epistle lesson today. So uh, if you're you know, going through the week and you want to spend some time kind of meditating on God's word, take that reading from 1 Corinthians um, and, uh, and this and just kind of lay them side by side and think that through. Um, so that's, you know, for those of you who are at early service, maybe you're already putting that together, but for those of you who are coming to, to the late service, maybe hold on to this because that, uh, that might be worth your time. Um, I want to backtrack just a little bit. I, I want to talk about this passage in Romans 1 where it, it, it says that they, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's where we wrapped up last time. And th there's more to this than, than just, you know, truth, truth and lies. Um, we, we, we tend to bandy those words about pretty lightly uh, in, in our society. And uh, I, even, I even talked about how hard it is to discern things that are true. Um, you know, because we have all of these different voices uh, in the world that are firmly and vociferously saying this is what's true, and then you have other truths, other people who are very firmly and boldly saying, you know, this is what's true, and um, sometimes it's a little bit hard for them to both be true. And uh, it, it, it's hard in how we conduct our day-to-day -day lives. But this is also really important for who we are spiritually. Our God is a God of truth. And when he deals with us, his word is true. Uh, I believe that I had the passage in, on last week's um, handout that, that says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and so there, there's a spiritual aspect to speaking the truth. And back in, I think it was 1976, there was a, uh, um, a Soviet dissident by the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Have, have any of you heard of Solzhenitsyn? Okay, good. He's a very interesting guy. Um, when he was young, he was a communist, uh, but apparently he wasn't a good enough communist because he got sent to the gulags 
And, uh, and while he was there, he became a Christian. And he, he wrote a, uh, a very big uh, document uh, that really lays out all of the abuses of the, the Soviet Union in, in terms of the gulags. And I, I think I pronounced this the right way, but uh, it, the book is called The Gulag Archipelago. And uh, it, it, it's, it's multiple volumes, and it, it's, it's, I have not read the whole thing, but uh, um, when that got to the West, people started to understand, you know, Reagan called the Soviets the, the evil empire, right? It, that's kind of where people were like, oh, yeah, there, there's major issues that are going on here. So in 76, uh, he's out of the gulags, and uh, he is really going around a lot, writing, speaking, particularly in Christian context, because he converted to Christianity, and that was a major part of his focus. But he wrote an article called Live Not By Lies. Live Not By Lies. Talking about living in the Soviet system, where they're being encouraged to not speak against the government, not to speak against you know, the atheistic ideas that were out there. And um, I, the, I printed the article, and uh, if, I don't know if there are any left back there, but if you didn't get one and you want one, let me know. I, I'll get it to you. But he, he writes this in, in uh, Live Not By Lies. He says, when violence intrudes into peaceful life, its face glows with self-confidence as if it were carrying a banner and shouting, I am violence. Run away. Make way for me. I will crush you. So that's kind of this idea of a political structure saying, you will comply. But violence quickly grows old. After only a few years, it loses confidence in itself, and in order to maintain a respectable face, it summons falsehood as its ally. Since violence can conceal itself with nothing except lies, and the lies can be maintained only by violence. Violence does not lay its paw on every shoulder every day. It demands from us only obedience to lies and daily participation in lies. And this submissiveness is the crux of the matter. And as I, I read this uh, article, it really struck me in terms of thinking who we are as God's people living by the truth. Whether that's the capital T, truth, you know, living in our faith in Jesus and the hope that we have in Christ, or it's in the simple interactions that we have with each other where we speak truth to one another. We're basically, we're saying we deal honestly with one another. And uh, I was thinking about the sad case of Ravi Zacharias. Are any of you familiar with Ravi Zacharias? He is a very prominent Christian figure. He died this past fall, I believe. And um, he was a Christian apologist. He went around the world basically making a rational, intellectual case for Christianity. Part of doing that 
He claimed to have degrees that he didn't have. He claimed to have taught in places that he had not taught. That he had been a professor at Cambridge, that he had gotten his doctorate at Oxford. Except that didn't happen. And that is coupled with some manipulation and some um, issues of sexual ethics. We'll just leave it at that. So all of this work that he did, much of it was very good, is wrapped in a cloak of lies. What do you think that has done to people who trusted in him? What do you think that has done to people who were deeply moved by his ministry, who then come back and they find, wait a minute, he wasn't, he was not even telling the truth about his degrees. What else was he lying about? Yeah. I'm reminded, I don't know if it's relevant, but I'm, re I'm reminded of what Jesus said about the guy who was, who was minister, or healing, and the, and the disciples said, hey, he's not one of us. And they said, well, if he's not against us, He's for us, and maybe Zacharias in this, in his errors, still accomplished things for the good and for the Lord. That doesn't justify. I agree with you. The truth is really critical, but um, I don't think we should necessarily throw out the baby with the bathwater. We might look at what he accomplished. Um, yeah. Um so in Romans 8, it says God works all things to the good of those who love him, right? And uh, so he has a way of using the evil of this world um, for good. That being said, <clears throat> this is severely damaging to the witness that we have. The man owed, owned massage parlors and... Um, manipulated and used those workers for his own gratification. That is, um, people look at that and then they look at Jesus' message. Chris? Yeah, and, and I think the, the, the word that you used there is a key word. It was allowed. He had people around him who knew. But he was too big 
you know, to be confronted with the truth. Sharon. <laughs> because for every one of these, I mean, you could just name really tens of them in the country where this has happened. Followers, if they're not careful, contribute heavily to these lives because we want people that we worship and think that are higher than the average human being, and no one is. Right. And that's a danger for all of us in every aspect of our lives to lift up people like the golden calf. Yep. Yeah, Lisa. Well, it, and, it, and actually, it's not just about popular preachers. Um, it, it also affects our personal witness because people are always watching, and if they know you're a Christian and you can, you know, proclaim that to them and they know you go to church and everything. Yes. Yeah, and, and I, I do think that I do think that in a sense that we are right to recognize, you know, like Ravi Zacharias is a sinner who's forgiven in Christ and, and all of those things. And it, it, but at the same time, there are people who have been hurt that uh, that has not been acknowledged. It's been swept under the rugs, and that's another form of injustice, and it's another form of lies. And uh, I, you know, the standard is extremely high. Um, and when Solzhenitsyn writes about this, you know, his main point is that much of what happened in Soviet Russia happened because, you know, people wouldn't even, you know, speak out against the lies. They wouldn't even take the, the lowest common denominator of not speaking them themselves. So our integrity uh, is hugely important and truth is a huge part of what Paul talks about in here. Be because all of this ends up, you know, all the stuff that we're doing here in terms of talking about Jesus, talking about forgiveness, talking about salvation, talking about Christ's death and his resurrection, it, it all is true. But how, how much of a lie will then compromise the truth, you know, for others, or even for ourselves. And, and I think that this is something that, that, that bears thinking out. Um, I highly doubt I'm going to get to it because uh, this is what, I'm going, what, I, what I do. And I said from the beginning, I'm, I'm good with going slowly through this. But when we get to the first part of chapter two, Paul is going to be right back to this idea about truth. You know, that's part of the reason, that's a big part of the reason I wanted to share this article with you, is to help us to think about truth and lies and how those things play out in our lives. So, um, again, if anybody needs a copy of the article, um, let me know. Uh, otherwise, uh, it, is there anything else anybody needs to add? Yeah, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting that you can 
use science to disprove God, but those that use science to try to prove God, I mean, I kind of thought those were the, the, the ones that were expensive. You know, they, they paid a heavy price, lost jobs, yeah. and towards the end, it was really pushing the one God about creation. It just kept going at it, going at it, going at it. But in our institutions, these lies are being connected. You know, our, our lower head and higher head education. You know. So it's a, it's a real battle. It is. It is. Yeah. We have to be careful, though. Not everything that somebody says that isn't true is a lie. There, you can tell something that isn't true, but you believe it to be true, and other people believe it to be true, then it's not a lie. A lie it's a mistake. It's a mistake. There's a difference between lies and mistakes, and we have to, as much as we can, give people the benefit of the doubt until it's proved that it is a deliberate lie. That's fair. Did everybody hear that? Basically, she said that there is a difference between a person lying and a person being mistaken. You know, that, that, that's fair and honest, you know, when you're dealing with people. Sometimes, uh, sometimes they are in error. In fact, this is part of the process that we call learning, right? You, you come up against something you, that you didn't know before that you thought was a different way. Um, I was talking with... Uh, uh, one of our members between the services, and, and uh, he used to work for NASA, and he was telling me about uh, a uh, experiment that they did that everything on paper looked perfect. And then when they shot the thing up into space and they got their data back, the actual results were different than their perfect results. And then it was like, oh, well, we, we, we learned something, you know. And uh, um, it wasn't that you know they, they were lying when they did the initial you know research and the initial work. It's they, there was something that was in there, some variable that they didn't know, and then they learned from from their mistake. So, yeah, it's a valid point. All right, anything else? All right, I'm going to try to finish Romans one today. We'll see what happens. Romans 1, 26 through 27, exactly where I did not want to get to, um, but uh, here we go. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is perhaps the most controversial part of the letter to the Romans from a human perspective. There are other things that we will talk about that I think, you know, spiritually speaking, that we should probably be more, um, wrestle with more deeply than this. Uh, this whole idea that the Son of God can die for all people, that your righteousness is not based in what you do, but it's based in what God has done. Those ideas should be pretty controversial, but this is the thing that I think our world will fixate on when uh, it reads this letter. Um, so biblically speaking, there is a design for human sexual ethics. And there is a design 
for human sexuality. And this is very much under attack in our society. You know, and I want to, I actually want to go back to something uh, that, that you said just a moment ago. Um, I think that we have gotten to the point where it's not just a matter of like open rebellion and kind of thumbing our nose at God's word. I think that there is a whole generation out there that doesn't even know. That they are wrong, they're mistaken, they're deceived, and they don't even know. So that we are at a point where we ask the question of what is, what is male? What is female? And some people are so desperate to prove all of these abominations, for lack of a better word. You have little kids who are three and four years old, little girls who say, I'm really a little boy and little boy. Well, little kids have always done that. They've always thought that the opposite sex has more privileges and more fun than they do, and so that's what they want to be. And now, even three and four year olds who say things like that, it's accepted as truth and they're encouraged to keep on that way. They're so desperate for that to be true. Yeah, one of the things that, I, if, I, if I heard you rightly, um, there's this idea that we, we want to, we look for what we want to find. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, when, I'm, when I read research, one of the things that really grabs my attention is when somebody comes into it and says, this is what I'm hoping to find, this is what I found, and it's very different from what I was hoping to find, and I'm actually even disappointed to find this. I'm like, that's gold. That person's on to something. Um, and there are articles like that. There are studies out there, um, particularly, well, I shouldn't say particularly, but uh, um, in, in the area of human sexuality, there's a book that I like to use in my pre-marriage counseling called How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking. Men, write the name of that book down because you know, there, there's no phrase that strikes fear in a, in a man's heart like when his wife says, honey, we need to talk. Because, oh. But even before you're married, has that ever preceded anything good if your girlfriend comes No, to I'm just saying. Has that ever no, no. Really positive. No. Um, and so these people, they're... they're um, one is a, a psychiatrist and the other is a sociologist. They're both secular. And they said they went into their research to discover how similar men and women are. And frankly, we are similar. We are the same species. <laughs> and there is actually a lot more in common than there are difference. But the differences are important. And they shape us and they form us. There is a reason that the prison system tends to be populated by men. (laughs) And it's because men tend, on average, to be more violent than women. And women are not surprised to hear you say that. Maybe some are, though. Um, and, and, and there are all kinds of things. Um, one of my favorites, your thumb. 
the male thumb can be as much as, I think the statistic was 30 times stronger than a female thumb. So, so ladies, if you're like, I can't open the pickle jar. That's, that's legit. That's legit. You know, and, you know, it, and, uh, and they said they, they went into this to find, you know, that you know, there are no differences. And they're like, and we were wrong. And this is what we found. And this is what you can do with it. And it's, it's brilliant. Hey, I didn't say how it got stronger. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's recognizing reality. And that's, that's one of the things I've been, I've been wrestling with a lot. And, and this gets to be tricky, too, because you know, your experience will shape your perception of things. But it really seems to me that there is such a thing as reality, that our God is a God who creates in an orderly way, that there is such a thing as truth. And we find ourselves in this position where um, the world looks at this sexual part of our lives and it says there is no truth. There's only preference, which I think is supposed to be a statement of truth, isn't it? If there is no truth, then there is only preference. That is kind of a, a, a statement that excludes anything else. And so then that becomes true? This is one of the things we're really good at. So in Romans 1 verse 18, uh, it, it says... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And I would submit that that is, that is where we are as we deal uh, with a, a host of things, but those include our sexual ethics and that's the context to, of what's being spoken about here. This is not new. We, we should not be looking out at the world and going, oh, it's all falling apart. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Let me, let me tell you a, a, a story in the book of Genesis about a guy by the name of Jacob who fell in love with a girl named Rachel. And he worked seven years seven years to be able to marry her and the wedding day came and he's ready and when he wakes up the next morning in the tent he rolls over to say i love you rachel except it's leah he's like well shoot i guess i better work another seven years so that I can marry Rachel. And then it becomes a competition of who can have the most kids. So Leah's like, you know, hey, Rachel, I'm kicking your butt. I got more kids than you do. You can't even have one. Well, I have a servant. Jacob, have sex with her. 
Okay. <laughs> and by the time it's done, Jacob has four wives. That's good Christian ethics, right? Or how about this one? This we take a little bit from the book of Revelation to understand something that happened in the book of Numbers. So, in Numbers, we have the people of Israel. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're coming into the promised land. They're still wandering in the wilderness, uh, but they're, they're kind of working their way there. And, and they, they come into contact with uh, another nation called Moab. And that's another story for another time because the children of Moab, Lot and his daughters, I'll just say that. That's where they came from. Um, and, uh, and the king of Moab sees Israel, they're huge, they're taking over everything, and there is this prophet by the name of Balaam. And Balaam seems to be something special. And so the king of Moab says, Balaam, come here. I will pay you to curse Israel. And you might, you might know parts of the story. God tells Balaam, don't go. Balaam's like, hey, God, the money's good. I'd like to go. God says, don't go. But the money's really good, God. Okay, you can go, but you're only going to say what I tell you to say. Sweet. And on the way there, the donkey speaks to Balaam, right? Warns him, you know, God's going to strike you down. There's an angel in the road. Only say what God says to say. And he gets there. And the king of Moab says, look, look at them. Now curse them for me. They do the ceremonies. They do the sacrifices. They do all the stuff. And he blesses them. And the king's like, whoa, 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 that's not what I paid you for. Okay, we'll try again. And they do all the ceremonies, they do the sacrifices, and he blesses them again. This happens a couple more times, and he's like, look, I can't say anything that God doesn't give me. But apparently, before he went his way, he says to the king of Moab, okay, so I couldn't curse them, but I have a plan for you. This is what you need to do in order to get these people separated from God. And he tells the king of Moab, hey, start inviting them to your worship services. Now, we think about worship services, we think about the organ, or we think about the praise team, and, you know, it's pretty mundane. American worship is boring. Canaanite worship, however, oh, wow. You've got drinking, you've got dancing, you've got good music, and, well, Canaanite religion is really all about fertility cults. And how do you get, how do you get the gods to have the idea that they need to have sex so that, that your crops will grow? Well, it probably means that we need to have sex right out on the hill. 
and we probably need you know prostitutes of both varieties in order to make that to happen and and you, you know what happens next in the book of numbers right after this the Israelites start worshiping with the Canaanites and they start getting in trouble with God and he starts kind of pulling their blessings away None of this is new. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. Sexual temptation has been there ever since the fall into sin. And I think that part of the question here that we need to ask when we read the book of Romans is what happens when God gives humanity what we want? Because when he blesses us, he gives us the things that we need. He gives us the things that are good for us. What happens when God gives us what we want? He, we end up with fertility cults. We end up with Baal and, and Asherah and all kinds of weird uh, deviant sexual practices that are tied to religion, which it's a whole industry of prostitution and, uh, and objectification and um, oppression. We end up with religions like the religion of Molech, which is a religion of, of cruelty and power, where young women having children are told to sacrifice their babies to the God in order that the God would have peace with them because just make more. And we find ourselves violating the context of being a creature, a creature who is created by a loving creator. And then we become our own gods. And that is really the warning that you have here in, in, in this discussion about sexual ethics. It's not about sex. It's about who is God. And how do we respond to a world that, 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 that's seeing God's wrath? And they interpret it as freedom. Because I would submit to you that's where we're at. We live in a world that is undergoing God's wrath and we say we're free. And God says, yes, you are free. Free to sin and to attempt to be your own God. And then we'll see how that works out for you. It is a terrible thing when God gives us what we want. And Paul continues, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Did you notice how covetousness comes up really early in the list? I mean, it's quite a list, right? It's actually, it's even fun to read in the Greek. Because it's just like, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. There's even a, like a, a rhythm to it, you know. And uh, I, I was reading this through. I was like, they're filled with all kinds of manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Well, what's the big deal about covetousness, right? I mean, think about the, the commandments, that's not even, in, depending upon how you number them, it's, it's not even until 9 and 10. I mean, you've got to get through you know, God's and God's name and, and worship and then you know, authority and parents, um, uh, murder, uh, adultery, uh, stealing. Those, those are kind of important. Um, and then uh, bearing false witness against your neighbor. And, and then don't covet. What's the big deal? Luther writes about this in the large catechism. And uh, um, I will say this for probably the rest of my life. If you haven't read the large catechism, it's totally worth it. Um, This commandment keeps people from thinking that they have kept all the commandments when they when they have not or, or oh when they have when they have done or not done the external act. It keeps us from thinking that we've kept the commandments in terms of what we do in our external action. Therefore, God has added these two commandments in order that it be considered sinful and forbidden to desire or in any way aim at getting our neighbor's wife or possessions. These commandments move us from outward action to internal motivations, internal desires. And what God is doing with them is showing us that sin is more than what we do with our hands. It's what we talk about when we do the confession quite often, that I've sinned in my thoughts, words, and deeds. Where do deeds begin? in thoughts and sometimes into words and then into actions. My favorite part of this whole thing is when he says that they are inventors of evil. Apparently Greek has a word that literally means one who thinks of new ways to do evil things. That's the human condition. Though they know, they know 
Who is Paul writing to here? Is he writing to a bunch of pagans? He's writing to Christians. He's saying, hey, Christians, you know. You know what the word says. He's talking to the church. In 1 Peter 4, verse 17, it says, It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. There is an expectation behind what is being said here that Christian behavior changes in light of our salvation. And speaking as a a preacher, this is one of the things that's a little bit tricky in terms of how do you talk about these things. Because... I know that when I say, you know, you should behave in this way, that way, or another way, there are a number of people that will then take that and infer from it that by behaving in these ways, then you satisfy God and you become right with him. That's always the fear. And therefore, a lot of preachers will not talk about How should you live now that you are a Christian? And uh, I'm not sure that I always do a good job about that myself. Because I'm always a little bit leery. I always want to bring everything back to, well, if God makes it possible, you know, you got to rely on God, which is true. But at the same time, has God saved you? I really expected that that one to be a lot easier. Has God saved you? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Based on those things, knowing that God has saved you and that you have the Holy Spirit, does it then follow that there should be change in our behaviors? Yeah. Does it follow that we will then be perfect? No. but we are saved and we have the Holy Spirit and we live in that forgiveness and therefore we are changed. This is that whole idea behind repentance. You know, to repent is to change the way that we think and we act. It is for God to be at work in us and to actually change us, to be different people, to be more reflective of who he designed us to be to, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2, you know, it's by grace that we've been saved. You know this this part of this passage. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is, you know, no works involved in this at all. It's completely and totally a gift that, that we might do the good works that God created in advance for us. So are good works necessary? Yes. Are good works necessary for salvation? No. If you're saved, should you be doing good works? Yes. Which might seem kind of circular because it is, um, but that is the way that it works. And I, I keep thinking about this idea that you know, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. There's a warning here of what happens when Christians refuse to change our attitudes and our behaviors when we refuse repentance. That's the type of person that Paul is describing here. 
the person that refuses repentance. Not only do we then do these things, but we approve of people who do these things. And for my money, that might be the most damning part of the whole thing. Because if as God's people, we look at others and say, no, no, it's fine. If we approve of the behavior, they're never confronted with the law that says this is sin and therefore never have the opportunity to repent, never have the opportunity to recognize my sin stands in a relationship with Jesus' forgiveness. And I think that, that's a big deal. If we look at the world and we refuse to call sin, sin, we are literally robbing people of the opportunity to hear Christ died for you. And in 1 Corinthians today, in our epistle lesson, we read, we preach Christ crucified. And that's the standard. So a lot of this sounds really harsh. And it, it is, yeah. The, the law always accuses us, and that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with God's law. And, you know, Paul is talking about this righteousness that... that he wants to get us to understand the righteousness from the outside, but to get to that, he has to break through this veneer that says that I'm righteous by the things that I do. And so he's going to look at these people, he's going to look at us and say, and let me show you how you're not righteous. And then I'm going to give you the real righteousness. And so, yeah, these words are harsh. Because as it says in Jeremiah, my law is like a hammer that breaks things. Or as it says in Hebrews, God's word is like a double-edged sword, dividing joint and marrow, discerning you know, thoughts and motivations. God's word does things that are painful, but for a purpose to bring us Christ's forgiveness. And I think we need to wrap it there, and we will pick up with Romans chapter 2 uh, next Sunday. Uh, any quick questions? We've got about two minutes. Going once, going twice. May I make another comment? One of the things that makes it difficult for Christians is that it looks like all the other guys are having all fun. Yes. And that's what happens with kids. It's hard for them to think that those kids are wrong when they're having so much fun. Yeah. And we are, don't always make the point that the fun doesn't isn't the only thing, and it's not the most important thing. Yeah. Um, so what, what Caroline is saying is that um, uh, part of the problem is that uh, you know we we sometimes take the joy out of life. You know, and, uh, um, and it is a bad thing when the pagans look like they're having more fun than we are. 
There's this phrase out there, boring is sin. I have rarely found sin to be boring. It's often very fun. Except that it leads to destruction. Except when the, you know, the penny drops and you start experiencing the consequences. Then, you know, yeah. Were you going to say something, Don? I was going to say, to me what's hard is, is it, it kind of turned the page now. You know, you're preaching hate. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. not, you're not preaching love, you're preaching hate. Yeah. You know, you're, you're preaching the truth, which is hate. You know, that's, they've changed the, the culture or the, the you know, the, the same. So, you know, as they accuse us of preaching hate, don't forget that even that is not new. When the first Christians were in the world, you know, one of the things that uh, you know, they were uh, often charged with was you know, disturbing the peace. And, you know, and that's, kind of, that's kind of the idea behind this. You know, you're rocking the boat. You're messing with people's you know, lives. And, um, you know, and so because we live by a different standard, it is going to make people uncomfortable and they will feel judged. And then I think the question becomes, how do we respond to that? And I fear that for a long time, the response of good, godly people has been good because you are judged. (laughs) Rather than, yeah, we are judged. But there is hope and there is forgiveness. Let me show you grace. And I think that this is something that we need to, um, we need to relearn. That our, our, our forebearers um, in the ancient church, that they understood this better than we do. And there are dynamics of power that are involved with this. And uh, um, you know, when, when Christianity became the state religion, in you know 327 or whatever that was uh, you know that that then changed our dynamics and our relationship with society and there was a blessing don't get me wrong it was a blessing to not be persecuted and to not have our brothers and sisters killed every day but that being said because our hearts are so drawn to power then instead of using the gospel to change people's lives we began using the power of politics to force people to conform. And I think that we are reaping, uh, reaping what we've sown or what our parents have sown. And, uh, I, and I, I, I'm hopeful in, in this, that you know, this is going to force us to go back to the gospel as our primary focus in terms of our relationships with other people because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not the rules that have often been the focus of what it means to be a Christian. It's the gospel. And I I think that the next decades are going to be very hard. But I think that unless Jesus comes back first, that these years are going to have an incredible harvest through and at the end of them and that God will bless this. And I I hold on to that hope because 
this is it's tough stuff. So, all right. I said two minutes. We took four. <laughs> I'm going to blame Don for that. God's blessings on your week. If you haven't gone to church yet, go to church.